Hello and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Schwartz. In today's episode, we cover the latest COVID-19 data presented at ID Week. I'm joined by our expert faculty, Dr. Arthur Kim from Harvard Medical School and Dr. Renzo Scherer from University of Chicago. If you'd like to see the data on the studies they'll discuss, you can follow along with the slides. Just go to the link in the show notes. But let's get started and turn things over to Dr. Scherer. Well, thanks so much, uh, Zachary. And we thought we should start just by trying to give a snapshot of where are we with COVID-19 with some estimated 103 million confirmed cases in the United States. And if you break that down to hospital admissions and deaths, you can see the cumulative totals of 6.4 million admissions, 1.1 million deaths. And looking at it in a weekly way, which the figure tells you a little bit better, 16,000 hospital admissions in the week of October 1st to 7th and 549 deaths. And you can see that since August, we've had an increase overall in hospitalizations. And I think it's a very challenging time for clinicians and for our patients who listen to us with all of the moving parts in COVID with the new bivalent vaccine and the fact that some of our uh, at-risk individuals have had boosters, some have not. We still have a need for recommending isolation and symptom management, very importantly for people still to ascertain testing to decide whether or not they're infected, in part to take advantage of the availability of antiviral therapies that can reduce the risk of hospitalization and death. And of course, we have the continuing variations in the Omicron strains, BA1, BA5, and now the more recent EG5 and others. And so I think it's uh, really a, a difficult time for understanding what's happening out in the world and what are the impacts of some of the interventions that we've already taken under in process. So I'd like to start by thinking about some real world outcomes from the large United Kingdom database for immune compromised individuals, including those with end stage renal disease and then explore a little bit what we know about the new bivalent vaccine and its efficacy in comparison to the old vaccine, its real-world efficacy in uh, elderly folks and immune-compromised, and then also look back at some of the impact of boosting. So let me start with the lovely informed study from the United Kingdom that has just uh, used all individuals as part of their database. So this is 11.9 million individuals who are over age 12. And we're going to look at two different populations. First, focus on end-stage renal disease as a risk, which we know is an increased risk, but this is to try to quantify the degree of risk. And then a, another population of those who are immune compromised, some 470,000 in that grouping. And you see the listing of the definition of immune compromise, which is quite comparable to the CDC's listing in the United States. So uh, it's very important to understand that among those with end-stage renal disease, there's overlap. They're more likely to be over age 65, to have multiple comorbidities. And most of the folks that we're going to talk about have had three or more vaccine doses. So this will be a fully, fully vaccinated population. And you can just understand the degree of risk while it's, while it's only 0.2% of the study population. It's a tenfold increase of risk of hospitalization. So 2.8% of hospitalizations are in folks with end-stage renal disease. And again, more than two-thirds of those with greater than three vaccine doses. And similarly, 3% of COVID deaths also in vaccinated individuals. And 
if you look at the crude hospitalization numbers, they're in the range of 25 and 24, if you exclude those who have had kidney transplants. And then if you look just at those who are vaccinated, there's an impact reducing to 23 and 21, but the overall adjusted uh, rate compared to normal hosts is still in the range of 3.8 for all patients, 2.8 if you exclude kidney transplants among those who are vaccinated. So still a two to threefold increased risk compared to the general population. And that translates similarly for the risk of uh, death in the population with end-stage renal disease. If we turn then also to look at immune-compromised individuals, they are also, as a population, more likely to be over age 65, to have a greater number of non-immune-related comorbidities, and also to be fully vaccinated. And here again, while that's only 3.9% of the total study population, this population accounted for 21% of hospitalizations and 23% of deaths. And if you look at the crude hospitalization rates, they're nine per thousand adjusted in comparison to normal hosts. That's a 2.1, 2.17 greater risk, even among those who are fully vaccinated. And similarly, about a twofold increase risk of death as compared to the general population, even among those who are fully vaccinated. So that clearly defines, I think, some of the, the problems that we're seeing. And I thought it was important also to further characterize those immune compromised individuals because there's clearly degrees of risk within that category. And the highest rates for risk of hospitalization and death, as you see here, are for recent transplants recipients led by stem cell transplant and organ transplant recipients within five years. Those with primary immunodeficiency where the rates are fivefold higher and end-stage renal disease and hematologic malignancies where the overall IRR is in the range of 3.6 to 3.8. Secondary immunodeficiencies, which would include folks with untreated or um, uncontrolled HIV disease, advanced HIV disease, are in the range of 2.9 increased risk for hospitalization and a threefold increased risk of death. And at the bottom of the list is solid tumors. So I think this helps us to understand the variations in the degree of risk in the patient population who are most at risk. So the key points from this section in the outcomes is just, first of all, that there's a continuing hospitalization and death rate with over 500 deaths per week in the United States. That will translate to 25,000 or more deaths in a year's time. We've seen that end-stage renal disease in the UK series was associated with a threefold increase in the risk of hospitalization and death compared to non-compromised hosts. And while immune-compromised persons are only 3.9% of the general population, they occupy a fifth to a quarter of all hospitalizations and deaths in that same series. And most of those individuals, more than three quarters, were fully immunized. So that's a population where we still need to do symptom management, treatment with ambulatory therapy, and to forewarn them about needs for potentially for hospitalization and emergency room visits. And among those folks with ICH, hospitalization and death was highest among transplant recipients, recent transplant, and those with primary immunodeficiency, end-stage renal disease, and hematologic malignancies. So I want to spend the second half of my time just looking at some of the newer information about uh, the updated vaccines, in particular, those that are active, the 2019-311 against the Omicron subvariants BA1 and BA5 that are dominant. And 
So this was, I think, a really useful phase three analysis looking at the uh, recombinant SARS-CoV-2 spike protein vaccines versus, first of all, part one, the BA1 monovalent variant vaccine, NVXCO2515, or both, the previous vaccine. And in the second part, also one-to-one-to-one to either receive the prototype ancestral vaccine, the 2373, the BA5 specific monovalent variant vaccine, or to get both. And this was a study looking at immunogenicity and safety. And the outcomes were that the monovalent BA1 vaccine induced superior neutralizing immune response against the matched Omicron BA1 virus compared with the older prototype vaccine. Similarly, the bivalent BA5 variant specific vaccine demonstrated superior neutralizing antibody when compared with the prototype vaccine against the BA5. Neutralizing immune responses were about at the level that we've seen with previous vaccines around associated with 82% vaccine efficacy, so indicating very good short-term COVID-19 protection, and then really excellent safety that was comparable with the known safety profile for the prototype vaccine. So very reassuring that these targets looking at the new spikes in the Omicron B15 and BA1 and BA5 subvariants are effective. So the next question is, what do we know then in more recent data about the efficacy of the bivalent COVID-19 vaccine against hospitalization? So this is um, looking at a group in the IV cohort from September to May of 2023, where cases were defined as those individuals known to have a positive test within 10 days of symptom onset as compared to controls people who have a flu-like illness and an, a NAT or antigen test negative within 10 days. And you can see that they were stratified by 6,000 immunocompetent individuals and 2,000 immunocompromised individuals. So the vaccination status that I'm going to show you is unvaccinated individuals compared to the monovalent vaccine, the bivalent vaccine in the short term within 7 to 89 days of vaccination, and then a bit of longer term follow-up from 90 to 179 days. And remember here, the outcome of clinical interest is COVID-19 associated hospitalization. So there's a lot of information on this slide, but you can see that in comparison to monovalent only, the bivalent short-term for immunocompetent adults overall was 51% vaccine efficacy. Really excellent efficacy, but Looking at that over a prolonged period of time after 90 to 189 days, there was a substantial waning of that effect so that vaccine efficacy fell to uh, 12%. If we go then further and break that down, first of all, by age groups, you can see very similar results for both the 18 to 64 years of age and the greater than 65, though there was a somewhat higher response rate, so vaccine efficacy and those who were over great, uh, greater than 65 years was 53%, and those who were 18 to 64, it was 43%. But in both cases, there was substantial waning after 90 to 189 days of uh, that effect. So strong initial effect, but durability was a challenge. And if we look at that then by comparing immunocompetent members of this cohort to those who were immune compromised, you can see, again, excellent efficacy in the short term, 7 to 89 days of 51% for immune competent, 
55% for immunocompromised. But you notice that among those who are immunocompromised, there's a more durable effect. So that in the second period, 90 to 189 days, still vaccine efficacy up to 43%. And then the last study that I want to share with you is the COVE study that basically looked at boosting with the uh, previous vaccine products during, first of all, comparing the different waves, Delta and Omicron, and also looking at a different dosing interval. So the way this study was structured, you either received two doses of the mRNA-1273 or placebo, and you were in the early vaccinated group from July to December 2020, or you were you got the uh, vaccine late from December 2020 to April 2021 and the placebo. So there's two groups of 8,000 individuals each in this group. And then we're going to look at outcomes by, first of all, by the strain of virus at the time. And you see an excellent response rate of protection from the Delta during the Delta era of 83%. And that was sustained over the 60 days following the booster. Whereas with Omicron, because Omicron has greater infectivity and more action at the spike proteins, the initial vaccine efficacy is only 56% and down to 4% over 120 days. Also, interestingly, there was a much more pronounced effect for those who were over age 65 of 86% protection. That also waned down to 28% but was substantially greater than for the under age 65, where the initial response was 15%, and that waned to 6%. And very interestingly, there was a difference also seen in the dosing interval of the boosting dose. The early vaccine group had 12 months between the second dose and their boost. The later vaccine group had an eight month. And you can see that overall with Omicron, with the post-boost, there was an advantage to having a longer period, a 12-month period between boosts. So the longer boosting interval of 12.9 months actually reduced the risk of Omicron to a greater degree than the shorter boosting interval of nine months. So let me summarize the second section, and then I'm going to turn this over to Arthur, and we're going to talk a little bit about updates in treatment. So we saw that the monovalent vaccine against BA1 and BA5 induce superior neutralizing immune responses against the matched Omicron BA1 and BA5 compared to the prototype vaccine with 82% vaccine efficacy and uh, known safety. In adults who are over age 50 years, COVID bivalent mRNA vaccine reduced hospitalization by 58% after two to three months, but the effect waned to 19% after four to six months. And the vaccine efficacy was more durable in the immune compromised host in that series, which waned, but only to 43% after four to six months. And then very interestingly, the boosting with the mRNA-1273 gave additional COVID protection during both Delta and Omicron. It was more pronounced in the Delta wave than with Omicron, and it reduced the risk of Omicron, but waned over time after around four months. The effect overall of boosting was greater with those who are over age 65, reinforcing how important that has been in that age category. And interestingly, there was a longer interval was associated with better protection from Omicron infection. So let me stop there and we'll have questions either now or also at the end. So Arthur, I'll turn it over to you. Great. 
Wonderful presentation, Dr. Scherer. I guess um, we will save some of the questions for the end so we can get through the presentation. But while we have some of this fresh in our minds, I thought I'd ask a couple of them. In the later study, one of the listeners asked, why was the bivalent vaccine more effective in immune compromised compared to in normal hosts? Uh, I think that's that's kind of a philosophical question, but the data may may or may not show us. But uh, you know, you can think of a couple of potential explanations. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think you might answer that with that. There's more distance to go for those who are immune compromised. They need all the support we can get. In fact, we've seen evidence that there's additive benefit to more prompt and timely boosting in that population a greater additional benefit to the use of antiviral therapies also in that population. So I think in general, the reason that it's uh, more effective in that group is they they need more support. Now, whether or not as a gross number, that means that it's overall more effective in preventing vaccines, vaccination or preventing infection than in uh, non-compromised hosts is a, is a different matter. And that's a, a different comparison. Arthur, you may also have an answer to that question. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that answer. It seems like um, the immune compromised are, are sort of where we feel like we get a, a lot more bang for the buck for our boosters. And I think uh, that seems evident by the hospitalization data you presented in terms of who kind of slips through and makes it into the hospital due to COVID. And we know that their immune responses, depending on the degree of immunosuppression, can be quite variable. So so that seems to be a, a target group. So this will get at some of the other more broader questions that were asked by the audience, which we'll return to at the end regarding vaccines. And so I'll spend uh, the next segment uh, in transition to therapeutics. And what we'll discuss are a bit of clinical trial data and some real-world data uh, relevant, uh, hopefully, to your practice. And I have Boston behind me in my background. And uh, for those of you who made it to ID Week, I hope you had a, a wonderful time and enjoyed our city. And we couldn't go through all the different abstracts related to COVID-19. And so if your favorite abstract did not make it to our presentation, uh, my apologies. But And so clearly the data just presented indicate the need to think about therapeutics, um, that there are still hospitalizations and, and a need to mitigate COVID-19's um, burden on our healthcare system, as well as consideration of other um, post-COVID complications, such as conditions that arise, um, long COVID symptoms, et cetera. So the first study that uh, I would like to highlight is an insight into the EPIC-SR trial. Uh, the EPIC-SR trial has been presented at the FDA meeting. Uh, there's some information at clinicaltrials.gov, but many of us are anxiously waiting and kind of seeing the primary results. So uh, this poster um, was able to uh, give us a little bit more uh, insight. And um, what they did was a uh, combined presentation about outcomes from both the EPIC-HR trial and the EPIC-SR. So HR stands for high risk, and that was the, the uh, trial that resulted in a uh, rather large reduction in hospitalization and death in those who are unvaccinated and also had risk factors and uh, led to the authorization of uh, nermatrophil ritonavir. The standard risk trial uh, enrolled patients who are unvaccinated um, with zero risk factors. So you can imagine the younger individual without uh, health problems, but who happened to be unvaccinated at the time of enrollment, or those who were fully vaccinated with at that time and uh, enrolled them to uh, placebo versus uh, study drug for, for five days. And so 
The integrated analysis will look at efficacy and safety and will provide us a little bit of insight into that EPIC SR trial, which we've been uh, waiting for more details. So um, when one looks at the pool data in the first column and comparing nermatrovir and, and placebo, what you're looking for is uh, the total number of um, hospitalizations in the numerator and the denominator, the number of uh, participants. And so this 83% overall reduction when one looks at the uh, EPIC-HR trial and the SR vaccinated high-risk patients. So they've taken out the unvaccinated low-risk patients. And you can see really that the majority of events are driven by the EPIC-HR trial. So, um, so that's where really one gets the most bang for the buck uh, for those who did not have prior immunity. Uh, they did look at from the EPIC-HR trial, um, and this, these data have been looked at before, but uh, for those who happen to be uh, SARS-CoV-2 seropositive, so they had evidence of prior infection, and so you're looking at a reinfection in, in patients who had prior immunity. And there also you can see the event rates are low. They are numerically lower in the dermatrovir rotonavir arm uh, compared to placebo. And then um, the, the rate in the SR vaccinated high-risk patients. And so this demonstrates how the event rates really changed. Uh, due to pre-existing immunity, whether by vaccine or by seropositivity. And, you know, some, in this case, the, fourth, the difference does not reach statistical significance. And so this then combines it and, and shows you the, the difference. And then um, they had additional analyses showing that this treatment benefit still went in the positive direction, uh, regardless of whether uh, patients had longer durations of symptom onset duration since symptom onset, age, sex, BMI, underlying conditions. So there's signals, uh, although not, I would say, definitive, that this medication can improve outcomes in persons who uh, are lower risk, although uh, I would say uh, clearly the number needed to treat based on these numbers would be much higher. The study then uh, decides to uh, show us uh, what types of uh, other medical visits can occur. Uh, and if you were in the placebo arm, uh, even in the uh, EPIC SR, um, that there was a numerically larger number of, of people seeking uh, medical care. And this is outside of the hospitalization, uh, which was the, the main endpoints of the trial. And you can see other health utilization statistics here. And they also presented viral load data. The uh, treatment emergent adverse events uh, that were seen, they are, uh, again, lower in those who are uh, received study medication. And this is uh, often driven just by having lower rates of hospitalization. And remember, this is the combined trial. They're not separating things out. So most of those events are likely in the higher risk, the EPIC-HR trial. But nonetheless, um, you can see that uh, the rate of discontinuation due to adverse events remains low. And um, uh, there were no deaths in persons who received nermatrovir rotonavir. Now, uh, the famous taste in the mouth, dysgeusia, um, that we all counsel about, I'm sure many of you, uh, was present at a much higher rate, as you see here. Then another question um, that comes up in addition to the question of whether antiviral treatment helps uh, persons with pre-existing immunity, the other question that often comes up is, if I take uh, this medication, doc, will I have a lower risk of, of long COVID? And there are a variety of ways to define long COVID, or there's um, symptomatic long COVID and the, the fatigue and brain fog that we see not only with COVID, but with other uh, infections. And then there's also uh, a way to define things by what we call post-COVID conditions or, or um, things that arise after COVID that could possibly be attributable. And the way that 
we look at this is by uh, comparing matched cohorts of persons who did contract COVID, uh, and then following those um, who had been treated with nermatrovir ritonavir, and then a matched cohort of those who were not treated. And so uh, there's one published study that uh, I looked at closely, a VA cohort study that suggests a lower rate of post-COVID conditions, but that's a VA study. And so there's a question of whether this applies more generally outside of that population. So the generalizability, in other words, of that study. And so the, these CDC investigators were looking more deeply into the health verity um, data set, and they included adolescents and adults, so across the age spectrum, 12 or older, excluding pregnancy, renal and liver disease, um, and persons who would not receive this medication due to drug-drug interactions. And so uh, in a sort of two-to-one uh, matching fashion, uh, they then looked at the incidence of, of either one or greater than two post-COVID conditions recorded um, 60 days or more after the index date. And so moving forward into the results, there were baseline differences even after this matching um, in indicating that those who are treated were more likely to have no healthcare encounters in the previous year. Um, they were slightly more likely to be vaccinated against COVID-19, and they were less likely to have documented prior uh, COVID-19 infection. So in other words, the, the, the second time around. Nonetheless, um, because of the, the size of this database, uh, they were then able to analyze by age group. And what you're seeing here is that in the uh, youngest age group, the adolescents, that actually uh, nermatrorotonavir was not associated with a reduction of post-COVID conditions. And in fact, there was a slightly higher significantly increased risk of um, certain conditions, um, uh, not a very uh, large increase in risk. And so what this either suggests is that uh, this medication does not uh, reduce such underlying conditions or that the uh, practitioners were applying these medications to persons who are more at risk for development of these um, types of medications. So there's a few explanations that can emerge from observational data. And then also there was not a particularly uh, seen effect in, in persons aged 18 to 49. And so uh, it really varied across the board. So you can see these numbers are close to 1.00 in terms of the relative risk. But uh, it was really in the older age group, the uh, age over 50, that there's a stronger signal um, that there was a reduced uh, rate of post-COVID conditions. And so you could interpret, again, from observational data, not a randomized controlled trial, that treatment could reduce some of these conditions, you'll have to take into account that there were differences in the baseline characteristics. So I wouldn't say this study is definitive in saying this, but we can continue to say there is, remains an open question, but a rationale that antiviral treatment may uh, assist in reducing downstream complications of COVID-19. There are at least three abstracts that I saw that also looked at observational data and tried to compare nematrovir ritonavir treatment to molnupiravir treatment, which, if you recall, was looked at in the uh, move-out trial and reduced uh, hospitalization and, and or death um, by about 30%, uh, which was less effective than the nermatrovirotonavir uh, EPIC-HR trial. So each of these moved into clinical practice, and so the patients who are receiving molnupiravir tend to be persons with contraindications to nermatrovirotonavir, but if you look at uh, outpatient treatment in the VA system, um, which is a wonderful database that allows um, uh, finding of cohorts that can be followed. And they, in this case, in the, uh, basically throughout 2022, they were able to 
follow patients after receipt of these treatments for uh, hospitalization. And um, what you're really seeing is that the number of events, uh, either hospitalization or death within 30 days, um, it was pretty close to equal. And this was true of the other two abstracts I saw. And so what does this mean? I, again, it's not a head-to-head -head, uh, comparison. Uh, it could be consistent with uh, just sort of each of these having lower event rates in the, in the modern era or um, event rates that are similar. And, and you just can't tell because there's not a placebo arm, uh, a matched cohort to see whether the antiviral treatments are preventing uh, hospitalization or death. So, you know, this just, I wanted to present sort of some balanced data regarding uh, observational cohorts and also display how we see signals that, that uh, we're trying to interpret uh, in context. And we really wish we had uh, randomized controlled trials to address several of these questions. But we're also interested in whether um, therapies continue to be effective against novel variants. I mean, uh, keeping up with novel variants is, is a subliterature of COVID-19 that is extraordinarily evolving. And so just as the virus does to, to sort of uh, escape our immune systems. And so uh, remdesivir and um, another medication, obeldesivir, which I'll describe in a moment, um, retain activity against the novel subvariants that were tested. And so uh, the NSP12 protein of the virus is the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. And, uh, and so these investigators uh, who are based at the company uh, looked at the prevalence of mutations in recent variants, as well as uh, the antiviral activity. Now, what is obeldesivir? This is an oral prodrug of, uh, of a polymerase inhibitor, and it's currently in phase three trials for treatment in high-risk patients in outpatient setting. And so uh, these are the kind of trials we're really looking forward to, to understand whether antiviral treatment is efficacious in um, the current setting. And so looking in a cell culture type system, uh, a replicon type system, they're able to um, look at the efficacy. And so what there is, I mean, there, there were some known substitutions in NS5, in, I'm sorry, NSP12, and the, um, the earlier Omicron variants um, displayed some variation already. Um, so the, they did find really novel ones in, in the polymerase. These are highlighting some of the more frequent ones, um, depending on the strain, whether it's BQ1, the XBB1.5, which became dominant recently and now has subvariants uh, sub that are important, and, and then a variety of other uh, less frequent substitutions. The bottom line is that the, uh, the EC50s, the inhibitory concentrations, the full change from wild type uh, do not change that much. And so um, uh, there's not, basically these medications retain activity. And so while there are other reports of emerging resistance uh, while on therapy, particularly in immunocompromised individuals, so far they don't seem to be circulating much. And when circulating, they don't seem to uh, be affecting at least the polymerase-based treatments, which is good news. And in terms of uh, data on remdesivir, which is really our, our longest used antiviral uh, since the days of uh, Act One in hospitalized patients and then moving to uh, outpatients in the pine tree trial. And so there's a third trial uh, called the Red Pine, which uh, may not have reached your attention yet, but this uh, looked at hospitalized patients with um, advanced kidney disease. You may remember that the uh, previous label um, basically a caution uh, regarding such patients with low GFR. And when you look across these three studies, they can then uh, isolate out the hepatic uh, adverse events. And so, you know, diving into this just a little bit, uh, the ACT-1 trial, these are hospitalized patients very early in the pandemic, as, as you may recall. And these 
were very sick patients and often enrolled patients who are already on their way or are in ICUs. Nonetheless, and that's why there are much higher rates of ALT abnormalities, AST increases. Uh, ultimately, you can kind of see hints that, that some of these signals are actually numerically lower in the remdesivir arm, and that may be consistent with some of the efficacy we saw in that trial overall in terms of the ACT-1 trial. The pine tree trial has much lower rates. These are patients who are outpatients. And so um, even when you measure ALT afterwards, you, you just don't see too many events at all. The red pine trial is a hospitalized trial um, enrolling later. And so the, we've definitely improved our care of these patients. Uh, you do see some events occurring, but ultimately um, the bottom line is that when one combines this uh, and looks at the grade three increases, they're just overall, there's no real signal of hepatic injury. And while slightly higher in the red pine trial, these kind of data uh, are likely uh, what helps support a change to the label if you missed it in late August that um, remdesivir is safe to give uh, according to the label in, at all stages of liver disease, including decompensated liver disease. And so if you missed that update in late August, I think that this abstract is one of the ones that helps support that. And so the novel COVID agents in development in terms of antivirals, uh, we couldn't present all of these in the interest of time. We want to get to the Q&A. But I did want to highlight a few of the abstracts as they display where, where drug development is at. So we've already talked a little bit about obeldesivir, um, which is this polymerase in inhibitor. And kind of like remdesivir has a low potential for drug-drug interactions, as shown in one poster. And so we're looking forward to the oral version of uh, polymerase inhibitors that are effective. Uh, there were some abstracts on uh, encitrelvir, um, which is a uh, novel uh, protease inhibitor. It's actually already approved in Japan, uh, where some trials have shown that treatment initiated within the first three days uh, has shortened time to resolution of symptoms. And so these are being looked at in larger phase three trials. And so there will still be drug, drug interactions with this medication, but in the absence of ritonavir, the pharmacologic booster that we all had to either learn for the first time or relearn uh, as HIV specialists, uh, it's missing ritonavir. So the degree of drug-drug interactions is expected to be less. I think another uh, approach would be to uh, find agents that target novel areas of the virus. And so in particular, we all recall the spike protein, uh, the receptor binding domain, how it changed from strain to strain, and we progressively lost our, our monoclonal uh, antibody arsenal uh, that targeted the RBD. And so um, here we're looking at uh, two um, compounds, just highlighting that they target the S2 subunit, which is far more conserved within the virus. And so one was a macrocyclic peptide, and um, this is looking at some preclinical models, including some murine models. And then an antibody um, that could actually synergize with um, uh, ones that target the RBD and can neutralize both uh, pre-Omicron and Omicron variants, including some of the later ones. And then um, we all recall um, tixagavimag silgavimab, um, I haven't pronounced that in a while, um, the long-acting uh, monoclonal that we gave to immunocompromised patients to help prevent COVID-19. And so at this uh, meeting, uh, I want to highlight a, a couple of more uh, candidates for that long-acting uh, monoclonal antibody. You'll notice one of them, uh, the first one, uh, was is uh, they're examining it as a single IV push. Um, I think that's important as, as, you know, in the previous days of monoclonals, you know, we'd have to uh, monitor patients quite a while. And so um, it'd be great to see the ability to administer um, uh, these agents. 
and then a novel one that continues to neutralize um, the variants in an enhanced model, including the recent uh, BA 2.86. And so there is going to be uh, continued drug development that uh, match our clinical needs of uh, fewer drug-drug interactions or uh, novel targets in case the virus mutates uh, further. So key points, uh, the dermatrovirotonavir question, um, it's definitely uh, has been used and, and there's sort of different uh, approaches that we've seen. Really, the data from the EPIC-HR trial support uh, um, efficacy of this medication, that it does do something to uh, reduce the virus. And, and you know, if you think about doing it early enough, that seems to be the approach to prevent downstream complications. However, the EPIC-SR trial, in all honesty, was a, was a negative trial. And so while we can try to look at it and subdivide it and, and support possible efficacy in certain subgroups, we still need the primary data to sort through to really understand uh, whether this works in vaccinated high-risk individuals or, I guess, unvaccinated lower-risk individuals. So um, the observational data studies, I, I think I uh, talked about one that uh, suggests that for older adults, um, that it reduces post-COVID conditions. Uh, there are caveats to all observational data, and so we just need to continue to um, explore them in context. And that's what we're going to have for the time being in terms of data to counsel our patients as to doc whether this, this medication you're offering uh, may reduce uh, long COVID. But um, we do continue to see some supportive observational data. So um, I guess just briefly, you know, what is my approach? Um, I guess uh, in this era, I would focus antiviral treatment to the highest risk patients, you know, uh, by age really being a, a major driver if you're older, you know, in a nursing home and frail, or if you have immunocompromised, these are patients that I take care of regularly who end up in the hospital. And then as, as Dr. Scherer presented, the recency of uh, vaccination may also be a factor in terms of applying uh, whether a patient has enough protection to kind of tough it out or to apply antiviral therapy. So uh, we do have information that some of the medications we're using uh, retain activity against the recent novel variants, uh, which is fortunate. Uh, the hepatic safety data um, from the trials looks promising. And so uh, a reminder of the change in the label that we can expand remdesivir to not only end-stage renal disease patients, which was an early adjustment, but to um, advanced liver disease. And then uh, additional agents are uh, in development for the COVID-19 prevention and treatment. So thanks to this audience uh, for listening. And um, I think it's time to turn to the Q&A, which is always uh, the, the fun part of these. So, Well, Arthur, I have uh, one question for you that maybe is the most commonly asked question from both patients and clinicians. Can you provide an update on COVID-19 rebound with uh, nermatrovir ritonavir therapy? How often does it happen? Why does it happen? What's the clinical course? What should we do about it? So maybe we could start there. Yeah. So, so firstly, um, as medical professionals and researchers may tend to do, um, we've started to perhaps overcomplicate some of this discussion. Um, but when you look at the FDA reports, the um, frequency of virologic rebound and some with symptoms, some without symptoms in the trials um, seem to be fairly low. And so uh, going back to the FDA presentation uh, regarding the, the approval of nermatrovirotonavir, but when you go into clinical practice, you realize that, A, patients are checking themselves way more regularly than they did in the trials. So the trials just checked every few days. And so um, when you check, when you look for virus, guess what? You'll find more virus. And so 
uh, the rebound rates in clinical practice have been much higher. Now, the updates um, seem to be that um, we still don't know uh, the important question of um, whether like if you treat like the minute you get diagnosed with COVID versus waiting a couple of days, whether that would affect the rates of rebound. We do know that depending on how you define it, that these are kind of around 10% uh, and that there's uh, differences between the overlap of um, virologic rebound. There's some people who have asymptomatic virologic rebound. You know, they're testing positive and they, they feel fine. And there are people who have symptoms and don't seem to have evidence of virologic uh, failure, these lingering symptoms. So there, there are some nice uh, reports, some of which are impressed that I've been following. And so um, I'll uh, look forward to their uh, arrival in, in the published literature. And, you know, so far we've not seen uh, clear-cut evidence that there's a lack of like a T-cell response to help control things, that there's um, uh, a lack of serologic response that lets the virus out. And it seems to also happen when they follow individuals who did not get antiviral treatment at a pretty decent rate. And so is this just a characteristic of the virus? And then the last update is whether or not longer treatment can help prevent these rebounds. And I think that's, that's an important question that we hope to answer. There is a uh, EPIC immunocompromised trial that will examine differing courses for immunocompromised patients. I, I think it's five, 10, and 15 days. And I think we might see signals of how to um, uh, you know, look at the rate of rebound and um, persistent virus, since those are individuals are the most likely to experience such symptoms. So that's a long-winded answer. Again, you know, the experts tend to overcomplicate things. We know it's there. Um, we counsel about it. We think there can be infections uh, when they rebound uh, on transmissions, although uh, not always. So still in that fuzzy gray zone, I'd say overall. Well, Several people have asked just about thinking about the timing of the bivalent vaccine. And I'll read one of them because I think it, it says a couple of things. It says, what should be the main reason to recommend vaccination against Omicron? According to the data, Omicron is still mainly an infection of the upper respiratory tract. So thank you. And others asking what's what's the optimal timing. And I'll, I'll start and um, Arthur ask if you would like to comment as well. I thought that the hospitalization, ongoing hospitalization and mortality data alone are, are compelling enough for us to be very careful in, in recommending uh, the new booster against um, the Omicron subvariants because it's still a dreadful infection and there's still those who are susceptible to hospitalization and to death. And while I would start, I would prioritize anyone over age 65, my peers, and those who are immune compromised on that list that we discussed, I'm very generous in my interpretation of that. So I would actually start at age 50, not age 65 in the United States, because the vulnerability is substantial for anybody with one or two comorbidities over age 50, like hypertension, obesity, diabetes, et cetera. I am inclusive rather than thinking of all limiting it to certain people. And those are the current CDC recommendations. And I think a little more difficult to answer concretely that all the recommendations say, now is a good time if there's been a passage of time since the last booster. This is a different vaccine, so it's reasonable to frame it that way. This isn't a, a booster of the previous series. This is a new vaccine. And so the new guidelines recommend for all ages that it be received. And then there's comments on timing 
eight weeks or more following a recent COVID infection or after the last uh, boost, as an example. But I think the the scientific question of what's the optimal timing and what's our best public health strategy to go forward is something there's a lot of discussion about. I don't think we have a final answer. Will it be annual vaccination? The arguments in favor of that have much to do with just the logistic difficulty of doing it more than with that regularity and the difficulty of keeping people's attention and, and having them accept the need. And we do an annual influenza vaccine. So there's a certain logic to once per year updating with a new vaccine. So I, I, that's a long-winded answer. There is no simple short answer to that very important question. Arthur, what? Yeah. how would you answer it? Well, uh, guess what? I'm scheduled for my XBB booster uh, within the next hour. Um, so okay. I've had um, previous uh, bivalent boosting over a year ago, and I've had COVID-19 uh, in the interim, uh, along with my primary series and, and and third dose. So this will be my fifth dose. I'm in my 50s. And um, why am I getting the vaccine? So we'll just present it that way. Well, I don't have many comorbidities. Um, I, I could use a little bit of BMI reduction. But, you know, I have um, the wastewater in our area was rising, but I have a couple of upcoming events. Um, I, you know, I may want to attend a concert in a couple of weeks. And also I'm going to be uh, visited by my brother who does have some underlying conditions. And so uh, because of that, I've decided to time my boost uh, now. Otherwise I could have waited until Thanksgiving holidays perhaps to, um, to, to boost. And so I, I think about it as this multifaceted equation of who you are, sort of what's coming up and how far you are from the last exposure. And which for me is like cl closer to 10, 10, 11 months. So so uh, I'm feeling like uh, I could use a little boost. And while there are, you know, some safety concerns, some were raised in the chat. And uh, yes, if you look in very large databases, the vaccine does have some statistically larger signals. Uh, there's a mention about clots, particularly with the J&J uh, &J vaccine. But even with the mRNA vaccines, there's a recent BA study with a very, very small risk that's higher. But when you look at the studies that look after COVID, you know, there's a pretty high rate of VTE, of venous thromboembolism, uh, high rates of onset of diabetes. You know, these are things that as someone with a, who could use a little BMI reduction uh, wants to avoid. So I think these are the uh, questions that remain before us. And uh, again, uh, discussions can take that equation of your own personal risk, upcoming events, the people that are around you, and kind of just make those decisions. Yeah. I'm in the same boat, so I'm, I am also scheduled, my wife and I, this week, and I've uh, recommended for all of our family members, but in each case, there's some differences. We do, in our larger family pod, have two unvaccinated individuals who are seniors, and that certainly complicates our thinking about interacting with those individuals. In that study that you mentioned with um, follow-up of nermatrovir and post conditions, some of them, like an acute myocardial infarction, was a 30% uh, reduction in associated with uh, the use of treatment. With clots and pulmonary emboli, it was a 40%. So it was even higher than the general number. I think there's several other studies that have that are only observational studies that have sort of pointed the signal in that direction that treatment and vaccination are associated with lower risk. To me, that's an additionally compelling reason to think about accepting vaccines, um, certainly how I talk about them. So both the acute illness and the reduction of uh, post-COVID conditions. 
I think we're out of all the time we have. There were terrific uh, comments and questions in the in the chat, and I just want to say, pleasure to work with you again, Arthur, and and thanks to CCO for the opportunity. Thank you, Dr. Kim and Dr. Sher, and thank you all for listening. To see more from this program, such as slides and opinion pieces, click on the link in the show notes, and stay tuned for more podcasts. Thanks for listening.